This is So, What Do You Do? And I'm Colleen McClellan. Today, I'm speaking with Dave Hurlbert. He is executive director of the Marini Opera House, an arts program in a facility in the Marini neighborhood near New Orleans French Quarter. The so-called Church of the Arts is not far at all from where I live, but as of this recording, I'm not there, and neither is Dave. We're at the American Dance Festival, where he is on the board and where I'm an alumna. My partner, Brian, has also done some freelance work for Dave in the past, though I'm not sure that Dave knows that, and he works for ADF this summer. That should be all of my disclosures, but um, also don't be alarmed by the clickety-clack sound about six minutes in. I was waking up my computer screen, and it turned out the microphone was still working. I do want to say one thing before the interview. I believe very strongly in public funding for the arts. I believe in living wages, comfortable living wages, for artists because I believe that art is invaluable to society. There cannot be too much art. So while Dave and I do veer into a bit of the hustle that some dancers may do to stay afloat financially, and how to make a dancerly life that doesn't necessarily include a starring role in a major ballet, I don't want to give anyone the impression that I think every artist should have a day job. Anyway, I digress. Dave Hurlbert from the Marini Opera House in New Orleans. Dave, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And if I'm not mistaken, we are on somewhat of your home turf in North Carolina? We are indeed. I grew up in Charlotte, uh, went to school there, went to UNC Greensboro for two years as a piano major, and then two years at the North Carolina School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, where I graduated with a degree in piano and composition. What brought you to an arts education versus an arts sort of hobby? I started playing the piano when I was nine years old, and it was the center of my life as a kid. Uh, even when I was nine or ten, I would practice uh, whenever I could. I loved it. What I did in my free time when I wasn't practicing was listening to classical music. So I decided that was what I wanted to do. I knew I probably couldn't be a concert artist under a recording label, so few people are. And I knew that I didn't really want to go into education. I just wanted to play the piano. Fortunately, I was on scholarship at UNC Greensboro and at School of the Arts, and my work-study responsibility was to play for dance classes. And that's how dance uh, became the other focus of my arts uh, and my, my life. Uh, I took to playing for dance classes beautifully. I, I loved it. I looked forward to every class, and I played for hundreds and hundreds of ballet classes and modern dance classes. But there was a pretty long interlude, if you will, between NC Arts and Marini Opera House in New Orleans. Yes. Which was, if memory serves, in San Francisco? Yes. After I graduated from School of the Arts, I uh, accepted a job with the San Francisco Ballet to be their principal pianist. And I played there for a couple seasons. But I realized I needed a break. And I felt that I should investigate uh, making a living in the business world. What was happening was the, uh, I was losing the joy of the music and the joy of the dance. Being a full-time professional pianist, uh, I began to be more anxious 
perfectionism crept in there. And I wanted to begin to love the music again and to love the dance again. Uh, I realized, however, that I didn't really have any marketable skills. I had a degree <laughs> in piano and composition, performance, not even education. There weren't that many job openings. Fortunately, I can write. And I decided to try a career in advertising. I was good at it, and I had a successful career, and uh, still work on projects as a copywriter for various agencies. But what happened then was the music and the dance and theater became my passion, which was funded by my day job. And in San Francisco, I co-founded a small opera company called Goat Hall. And we had a shoestring budget, but we presented a lot of uh, Stephen Sondheim uh, musicals, uh, operas by Giancarlo Menotti, uh, and other things uh, for a good number of years. You know, you said something right away that I think is really interesting about being a young person who loves playing piano and can do the six-hour rehearsing, and but you seem to have had a sort of internal acknowledgement that very few people make a career out of being a concert musician. And I'm curious how that influenced your decision making mm -hmm. and how it influenced your sort of outlook on the future of your work. Yeah, one image that I had uh, fairly early on, I, was, uh, I played at Ballet Arts in New York City. Uh, I played for the American Ballet Theater School. And my colleagues uh, tended to be uh, Russian ladies of a certain age. <laughs> we all carried around huge stacks of dog-eared music that we used. And my revelation was sitting around during my breaks, waiting to play, and seeing these ladies of a certain age trudging around with their dog-eared music. And I thought, I don't want to be 50 years old trudging dog-eared music from studio to studio. I just don't want to do that. And uh, I couldn't think of an option. That's when I decided I had to think of another way to bring in money so that I could continue my love affair. Were you at the film screening at Nashville last night of the documentary called Black Ballerina? No. It's wonderful, and I highly recommend it. There's a particular interviewee in that documentary who, I don't want to spoil anything about the film, but it's sort of heartbreaking to watch her struggle to make a career of dance. And there's a point at which she's very self-critical about not making that work. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to know, how do you teach, whether by your behavior or your offerings at Maroney Opera House, how do you teach young people that it's okay to have a passion or a hobby or a part-time gig dancing once a year in a concert and not being a, a prima ballerina? What we do at the Marini Opera House and with the Marini Opera Ballet is we give opportunities to young artists. We are necessarily small. The Marini Opera House seats at its very most 200 people. Our budget uh, is not large. It's uh, considered a medium-sized nonprofit. Our last fiscal year, we ended up uh, paying, supporting, not full-time, but paying, uh, about 90 performing artists in New Orleans. Not just dancers, these were also classical musicians, jazz musicians, um, 
various performing artists, most of them young people. Um, I think that most people understand that we cannot afford, right now, full-time positions with our dance company for anyone. I think most people, especially our dancers, understand that we do our best to pay them as much as we can. It's an ensemble, and what we do is we program as much as we possibly can, up to the last penny of our budget and beyond, in order to give as much experience performing as we can. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Well, I think it does, because, because you're saying that despite the sort of limitations of having a small company and a, a relatively small budget in a small space, you're providing that kind of exposure and, for lack of a better word, that kind of hustle for dancers where it's, a, you know, it's okay to be in nine different projects and teach at NOGA and it's okay to set up that kind of life and to support yourself in, in multiple ways. That's right. What we do, the Marinette Ballet has a very high standard of production and performance. We're not full-time. You can't survive on what we pay our dancers for rehearsing and for performing. And I think what we're proving going into our third season is it's, it's possible to perform at a very high level and not have to move to New York and get into the Paul Taylor Dance Company or the New York City Ballet. It's possible to love and experience your art in New Orleans in a practical way. So this has been a very roundabout way of asking, you know, why New Orleans and what what have you done to set up the Marini Opera House? What has what have the past really four years been like since having having the notion and establishing the organization? What led to it was we had two years of dance festivals in New Orleans where we invited local choreographers to apply. They were given stipends to produce original work. The stipulation was that it had to be with live music. The two festivals went very well, but what we realized was there aren't that many ongoing opportunities in this town. There are projects, and it seemed at the time that the typical mode of performance was in a festival once a year, maybe twice a year, and that was it. There seemed to us uh, that there was no continuing operations no regular company with regular rehearsals and a regular performance schedule throughout the year. So we started to think, well, perhaps we could try to lead the way and see if it's possible here to create a small company with a regular season, pay them for rehearsals, only perform to live music. The first year was rather an experiment, <laughs> and I learned a lot. Uh, I thought I knew everything when I started this, but uh, I certainly do not, and I'm learning, thing, learning things every single season. How did you fund that first set? Was it a personal purchase to purchase the building and then, you know, finding matching funding? Or what did that look like for you from a financial perspective? Well, fortunately, the Marini Opera House Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit, survives with corporate sponsors, foundation grants, donors, and occasionally box office. A lot of what we present at the Marini Opera House is free. Uh, it's donation-based. The dance company's different. I had to make a concerted effort to create a budget, to carve out a budget of the entire operations of the Marini Opera House for this dance company. 
We started with uh, six dancers. We paid very little for rehearsals, but as much as we could. I did a Kickstarter uh, to get some of the money, and I did. We were very lucky. We stepped up the efforts on our fundraising and our development because of the Marini Opera Ballet. We uh, have had now two very successful annual appeals in the spring. I have been very lucky to have attracted um, significant corporate sponsors. Mignon Faget is, is one of them. Thank goodness for Mignon Faget. For listeners who aren't uh, necessarily in the New Orleans area or the southern region, Mignon Faget is a local jewelry designer. And I am currently wearing a piece of her jewelry. So I feel like, in a way, I have supported the Marini Opera. And you have. Thank you. <laughs> the other thing is, um, fortunately, the Marini Opera House is a beautiful church constructed in 1853. And people like to get married there. The, the income that we make from these weddings and film shoots and photo shoots and music video shoots all goes to the foundation. Uh, we don't profit from that. That helps us to, to fund the Marini Opera Ballet, the Opera Creole productions, the New Resonance Orchestra productions, the Sunday Musical Meditations, everything we do. Uh, that's a significant part of, of, of our foundation's income. So we're able to make it all work with the weddings. Uh, thank goodness. If you want to get married, please check out the Marini Opera. <laughs> uh, corporate sponsors, uh, the wonderful Arts Council of New Orleans, uh, the Jazz and Heritage Foundation, the Greater New Orleans Foundation. With all of that, we're able to stitch together a budget uh, which is getting better and better each season for our dancers to pay them as much as possible so that uh, eventually, I'm hoping, we'll have a budget uh, to offer them full-time positions and they can focus on their art and what they love instead of having to work side jobs. Right. There's a, an interesting sort of cultural challenge in New Orleans, to my thinking, where it is valuable to preserve and sustain the historic art forms, the jazz and the marching bands, uh, Zydeco dancing, everything, everything in that regard. Um, is, is culturally priceless in New Orleans. And there's this, since the storm, there's this influx of transplants, myself included, and that's fine. And I think it's important to sort of fan the New Orleans art world out into new realms and new forms. How do you reconcile that effort to diversify the New Orleans art scene and to enrich it with um, not taking away from the, the preservation aspect and the historic aspect of New Well, I tend to take a, a, a big view. We named the Marini Opera House in honor of the French Opera House, uh, which was the jewel in the cultural crown of New Orleans. The French Opera House was uh, widely attended, widely popular, and one of the central parts of the New Orleans cultural uh, art scene. It burned in the 19, early 1920s and was never rebuilt. And to me, to the artists of the time, I read accounts of that building burning. They were weeping in the streets. What I'm trying to do, at least in a small way, is to help to begin restoring that. What happened at the French Opera House was opera and ballet. There was a ballet company. It was a huge part of our inheritance uh, in New Orleans. So this is a small attempt to bring that back 
nearly 100 years later. And there is the New Orleans Ballet Association, but my understanding is that they provide education and sort of imported shows. They'll bring in touring shows. The New Orleans Ballet Association does a great job. And what they do uh, is they make it possible for kids to study ballet for free. And we've had very great artists come out of that program. The other thing they do is they bring in some of the best dance companies in the United States so that we have exposure to them and what they're up to. And that has a great influence on our local choreographers and dancers. The New Orleans Ballet Association actually used to be a ballet company, but the economies of it didn't work out. And I believe that ballet company disbanded it around in the 1980s. So it's been about 30 years, 30 or 40 years, since uh, the city really has had a company that uh, rehearses every day, has a regular performance schedule. There are a number of companies in New Orleans which do a nutcracker, or which do um, a recital and a nutcracker. But to do an entire season of programming, I think we're the only one. It's, it's all a very interesting sort of patchwork that brought you to this position, rather than a, a linear climb. And I'd love to know what, what that means for your schedule, what that means for your year. Well, my year revolves around our season, which is also our fiscal year. Uh, we begin in September, and that's when our dancers come back and begin rehearsing. And we end, uh, we end our season, really, in May, with a few follow-up things uh, during the summer. Uh, things get particularly busy beginning of the season, when we get organized for the work ahead, and also in May, towards the end of the season. Uh, we've just come off of our busiest month, May. That is when all of the contracts are signed for the upcoming season. All of the programming is locked into place. Uh, and there are a lot of weddings. <laughs> so uh, that's our busy time. Uh, we don't do much in the summer. And so I'm able to, to actually get away for two weeks and do things. And what do I do on my two-week vacation? Well, I go to the American Dance Festival in Durham. And then I go to Jacob's Pillow. Uh, so that's my two-week vacation. <laughs> it's funny, I, I know we ran into each other after one of the Marini Opera Ballet performances recently. And I said, oh, I'm going to ADF. And you said, oh, I'm on the board. <laughs> and it's yeah. so, the dance world, I think, is an interesting one. Obviously, I find it fascinating. I've been involved with it my whole life. But there's something I, I, in particular about dance. And I talked about this with Diana Hoffmaster from ADF. I think that dance, of all the arts, is the one that demands the most empathy, I think, because it transcends language, it transcends, really it transcends style, and everyone has a body, everyone can watch dance and sort of physically imagine that, and not only that, but then witness this sort of moving art piece that they can't look, they can't look back at, you can't rewind a dance piece, you can't put it on loop on iTunes, you just have to be there and be present and absorb it and imagine it. And what are your feelings on that? And what are your, what are your attitudes on that as an executive director and as somebody who's really uh, at the helm of all this programming? Well, okay, I'll just say it. Um, to me, dance is sacred. Um, <laughs> that's just what it is. Yeah. Um, and that's why dancers, uh, choreographers, and the fans and the adherents uh, in our very small world are so deadly serious about it that it almost becomes a religion. 
uh, of sorts. This is where I mentioned that the Marigny Opera House is a deconsecrated German Catholic church. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now we are the Church of the Arts. I think as far as dance goes, uh, what's really quite extraordinary about it is there's nothing in between the performer and the audience. The performer is using his or her body. There's nothing in the way. There's no musical instrument. There's not even a voice most of the time. There's just this quite immediate and visceral movement. And once it's over, it's over. The end of the dance is like the death of a flower. There's, you cannot recreate it. You'll never see it again. You can see a video representation of it, which is never quite satisfying. You can see the dance performed again, but it is not going to be performed the same way. Uh, and that makes it all extremely poignant. And that, to me, is a, dance is certainly a metaphor for life. You have your life, and you have one chance to live it. And that's it. And I think that's why dance has such a powerful effect on people. I think even audiences, we get a lot of audiences in the Marion Opera House who aren't that sophisticated as far as dance. Many of them tell me this is the first time I've seen dance on a stage that hasn't been the Nutcracker. People are quite moved by it, even if they don't understand what the steps are. They're moved. And that's because of the visceral, direct nature of, of, of what dance is. On whom do you rely for your artistic guidance? Being someone who has had a, a very important role adjacent to dance, but not as a dancer or as a choreographer. I imagine being executive director, you're, you know, work, you mentioned contracts and scheduling and budget, but there is an artistic demand to that. What voices do you listen to, whether in person or from history, to guide you in, in dance? Well, I, I would say my role model is Sergei Diaghilev. I love it. Who was not, a, certainly not a dancer. No. God forbid. Sergei Diaghilev, for the for the non-inducted into the dance cult, um, Sergei Diaghilev was at the helm of a group called the Ballet Russe, and I'll leave it at that. I highly, highly recommend that you watch the documentary Ballet Russe and that you look up Diaghilev, uh, his style and his personality, as you were. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, art and dance was the center of Diaghilev's life. It was the per purpose of his life. He found the best people available. And fortunately, he was, we're talking Paris, uh, between 1905 and 1929, Paris and London. He had a lot of wonderful voices to listen to. The voices of dancers, certainly. Composers, musicians, artists, costumers. Didn't he work with, um, who was the French designer who made those beautiful posters, the sort of flat... Box? Yes, he worked with even, like, down, down to that level yeah. of listening. Mm -hmm. That's, that's wonder. I think that's the, that's the perfect, especially for New Orleans, a city that's so rich with everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Diagolet simply put people together and trusted them and was loyal to them. Uh, what I try to do is put people together. I would never claim to be a choreographer. I'm not a dancer. I'm a musician. Uh, I haven't performed in years, in years really. I'm not a painter. But I think I have pretty good intuition and pretty good taste. And I rely on those 
and tried to cultivate relationships with painters, dancers, choreographers, and put them together uh, and see what happens. And the voices I listen to are um, the, the voices of uh, the dancers in our company, the choreographers that I work with. I'm talking now to an artist in Mississippi uh, about painting backdrops. So as far as voices, I, I would say almost every performing artist that I come in contact with uh, in relationship to the Marinette Ballet, those are the, the voices. Is there anything that you, you know, I, I normally ask interviewees like, oh, what do you recommend for somebody who would you know, take a similar path or who would want to do what you do? But it's sort of, that question doesn't really apply in this case because it, it, it has been, it sounds like a very intuitive journey and a very long one, and that's not necessarily something one can plan for. What do you recommend for young people or someone interested in a career change really to tie them into that world and give them a sustainable relationship with the arts? You know, that, that question has stupefied me. I, I, uh, <laughs> you know, okay, how I've ended up where I am now over all of these years has really been a case of following my own heart. That's really been it. And I think the biggest mistakes that I've made in my life has been not trusting myself enough and not following my heart. Deviations from a path. I could not have told you where this path was going to end up. I never had an ambition to run an opera house or a dance company. It simply ended that way, and looking back, it looks like a very logical progression. I, I can't imagine that there are a lot of young people who uh, would have an ambition to do what I'm doing. I mean, if you do, I hope that you'll email me, because I, I would think you'd be a very interesting person to talk to. But I would say in the meantime, to follow your heart. And I think that what we have in our dance company are nine dancers who are following their hearts. They dance because they have to. There's no logical sense in accepting the meager pay that you get and the extraordinary physical effort that you have to extend uh, other than love. I'd love to know, sort of in closing, what do you what do you envision for a world where young people are exposed to art and empowered to to pursue it culturally and financially and and what do you see as your role in in that equalization of the arts? I think uh, if you're an artist, you have a profound responsibility. If you're an artist, you're responsible to do your art. That's what I do, and that's the important thing, because it is art, it is what we do that humanizes people. The art that we do is a direct confrontation to the evil around us. It is. For a while, when I was young, I questioned what I was doing. At that time, I thought, you know, things are so bad in the world. How dare people dance? Or how dare people do Swan Lake? Hmm. How trivial in the face of all of this. That's how I felt when I was young. And today I feel the opposite. I think it's very, very important to do Swan Lake. I think it's important to do silly things. And I'll tell you what, I was looking through Facebook, which was horrifying, depressing today. 
But all of a sudden, there's a friend who had a photograph of some flowers that she took outside. And, you know, I almost cried looking at that. I thought, yes, you know? I think right now it's really important to have photographs of flowers. I think it's important to highlight the goodness in people and, and the beauty of what humans are capable of. And that's how we confront the situation. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the show. I have so enjoyed speaking with you. I've enjoyed it too. And there you have it. Thank you very much to Dave Herbert for making time to talk with me in Durham, North Carolina. Thank you also to Andy, let's see if I can master this, Hassenflug. In German, his last name means rabbit plow. Andy is an ADF musician, so I changed up the theme music today to make the most of my week here in Durham. You can check out his music on SoundCloud, and I'll put a link in the newsletter at tinyletter.com slash so what do you do. This particular track uh, is called Biker Broads, which I think is great. This has been another episode of So What Do You Do, and I'm still calling McClellan. Have a great day, and go make art, and support your local artists. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.